1: Hello and welcome to Conversations with the Voice of Reason. I'm your host, Benjamin Boyce, and today's conversants are Christopher Paisley and Jonathan Church. Jonathan Church is the author of Reinventing Racism: Why White Fragility is the Wrong Way to Think About Racial Inequality. And Christopher Paisley is the author of Exploring White Fragility, Debating the Effects of Whiteness Studies on America's Schools. In this conversation, we talk about their books and their basic standpoint with regarding Robin DiAngelo's Theories of White Fragility. Jonathan Church takes a more logical approach and breaks down her arguments in spaghetti or maybe angel hair pasta, fine ligaments of nonsense. And I'm sorry to be so strong about that. And Christopher Paisley details the effects of so-called whiteness studies on actual education. This is a great conversation. These guys are doing a lot of legwork to undermine one of the dominant ideologies that is inserting itself upon our education system and fostering so much divisiveness along racial lines. So without further ado, here is Jonathan Church and Christopher Paisley. Have you guys, like, spoken
0: on a recording we we have we haven't spoken it's been a little while how you doing jonathan
1: (laughs) oh
2: i'm all right i i uh just um busy i i've got the i'm working on a new book now uh Mm -hmm. which is due in september um and uh finishing up some big research go ahead the
0: manuscript is the manuscripts due to be submitted in september
2: end of september yes
0: nice good work man you're you're a machine
2: yeah, you try to be, um, but you know you and I know, and Benjamin, and I imagine most people know that the human body doesn't exactly work like a machine. But um,
1: mm-hmm.
2: you know, you you try to be disciplined and and uh, um, hardworking. So it's mm-hmm. a squishy about, machine. Yeah, yeah. Physiology depends on how the physiology is working. But how about you guys? Um,
0: I'm on my spring break, so. You know, nice. I'm feeling a little relaxed this this week. It started Monday. It goes till Friday. So but we're still virtual at my school. So okay. this is this is my classroom right here. So oh, this really? is where I teach every day for the last seven months. We might go back in a couple of weeks, but I don't know. We might not be back till September. So we'll see. Yeah,
2: you know. that's um, yeah. It, it, interesting how that works. I mean, I telework now every day and I love it. I don't even mm-hmm. want to go back. I don't want to go back. Mm-hmm. I just. You know, wake up, get get online, work, and then as soon as I'm done, I don't have to commute. I can just kind of get get on with my other stuff. You know, so mm-hmm. it's fant- it's actually quite fantastic. Um, so we'll see. I, I do think you miss we'll the problem- classroom,
1: Christopher.
0: I I do. There's parts of it that I miss. I miss the kids. Um, see, there's it's totally different when you're in front of the kids. You know, it's a totally different interaction. So being with the kids, especially coaching, is I miss that. Um, especially because a lot of times the students, there's no requirement for them to have their cameras on. So they'll turn them off and we'll try and coax them into getting them on. But the, but the district basically said, you know, because of their, their situations, depending on what's going on in their house and their background. So it's like, they can turn the cameras off. I'll try and get them to turn them on. So it's hard to really interact with them as much when you have them in person. So I'm ready to go back and see them. And so I can, you know, it's easier. I'm teaching Shakespeare right now. I, I just got finished doing Othello. Yeah, it's a great story. I love Othello. And it's so hard to do Othello through the computer <laughs> because um, when you're with them, there's just a different dynamic. But I think it went pretty well. So we'll see. They're taking their final test when we get back from break. So we'll see how they do.
1: <laughs> yeah. yeah. Is Othello a good launching off point to introduce your two books, uh, Jonathan and Christopher? Your books that were ostensibly here to talk about, uh, which are—would mm. w- you call them shakeda- takedowns of the shakedown? Of or, or what, how would you uh, talk about your uh, the books that you guys have put out? It's catchy.
2: Well, I uh, maybe about a year ago this time now I wrote um, an article. Uh, Marion West saying that Othello is not about racism. Um, And so I guess you could say that it is somewhat of uh, an interesting launching pad. Um, You know, I mean, it's... uh, I don't know if you want me to launch in, but, I mean, the the idea is Othello is a lot deeper of a play than just uh, a, a foil for illustrating some core tenets of... Uh, 21st century anti-racist training Um, and I think the impetus for writing that article it was a reaction to a play I saw a couple of years ago at the Shakespeare Theater here in D.C. and um, the playbill which you get at the beginning of a play uh, as is typical in these situations had an interview with the director and, and the actors and so on and I just recall reading Comments from the actors about how this was a blatantly racist play, and Iago was, uh, you know, obviously this racist character is very, you know, jealous of Othello and, and, you know, on the basis of race or whatever, but it essentially making it a play about racism. And while there are some references to the, you know, the, the Moor and, and so on uh, throughout the play, I mean, I, I would say they would not be uncommon for the time, but essentially what I uh, contrasted it with was Harold Broom's reading of the play. Um, which is that this is much more about play, not just about jealousy, which is the obvious theme, but also just about the incarnation of evil in, uh, in Iago, and how frightening a, a character Iago is, at least in the eyes of um, Harold Bloom. And if I. I might not be recalling this correctly, but I think he recalls Jed, Judge Holden in uh, Blood Meridian by Cormac McCarthy, also as a sort of a Miltonian character, Beelzebub or whatever. Um, but essentially, this is a, a, a play about the nature of evil. Interpreting it through the filter of just uh, you know doctrinaire, dogmatic, anti-racist training, um, it just really kind of makes it out to be a very superficial play. Uh, now. I'll just say it in the context of disrupt texts, which is an unfortunate development yep. in my in my view. Um, and the reason I consider it uh, an unfortunate uh, development is not that I'm opposed to multicultural uh, education or or expanding the canon or even critiquing the canon, uh, because those are all worthy, uh, worthwhile um, endeavors. Um, but the issue seems to. In, instead to be about dogmatic reading of literature and essentially filtering it through a construct of power and privilege as we do with everything else these days. And again it's you know, there's nothing wrong in and by itself with it, critiquing power and privilege. But the problem is, and this is my ultimate critique of everything that we're gonna talk about, that people are talking about with is dogmatism. Is the way the, the degree to which critical race theory anti-racism training, Kendi, D'Angelo, everything has become dogmatic.
0: Yeah, that's interesting to jump in. Um, I saw this Coleman Hughes video a couple weeks ago where Coleman was talking about how he once again invited Ibram X Kendi to debate, and he said he had this all set up. He was going to do it with the TED Talks. He offered to do it at, I think, Kendi's university, Boston University. Um, and they were going to raise money for, for charity, and it was all set up. And Candy refused. And it's interesting because Kendi um, doesn't debate his ideas. Just like you said, it's, it's just, it's ideology. It's not about a conversation. It's not about debating. Kendi never debates. You can go on YouTube. You can go on Google. You can Google all you want. You'll never find a single debate from Kendi uh, ever. He'll lecture you. You'll find a million lectures, but you'll never find a debate from Kendi. Same, same thing with D'Angelo. D'Angelo is the same way. You won't find a single debate of D'Angelo debating her ideas she, she doesn't defend her ideas, she'll lecture you, and then if you want to challenge her debate, it's the same thing. It's, I, I think it's the dilemma of the false, uh, or the fallacy of the false dilemma, the false choice, because with Kendi, it's like, you agree with them, you're an anti-racist, you don't agree you're a racist, so you only have two choices, and with D'Angelo, it's you agree with her theories, you're a nice anti-racist, you disagree, you suffer from white fragility, so it's total indoctrination, it's not education, and there's no way there's no way to explore it. How, how do you make their philosophies better? How do they strengthen their own positions when they don't even debate them? It's ridiculous.
1: And no. when you go into something like Othello, then it reduces everything to a shallow reading. It reduces all of life to a shallow reading. And even a shallow reading of the good and the evil, everything becomes mm-hmm. so shallow because there's no place for us to go anywhere else than this interpretation. I...
2: I guess, in contrast, do try to engage with my critics. Um, and there was one t- Twitter comment recently about how quick candy does offer to debate. But the idea is that there's only certain types of debates that are worthwhile. And I can see uh, on one level that, you know, you can't debate everybody. You can't engage every tweet storm and so on. And, and I get that. Um, but that said, first, the is very explicit about not debating. She just doesn't do it. She doesn't want to do it. She's not interested in it. She explicitly says disagreement is not of any interest to her. Kendi is just very much a crusader and is interested in his binary anti-racist framework. And if you're just not going to operate within that framework, then he's not interested. Uh, but I, I get the sense that he might be slightly more amenable, but only within his binary construct.
0: Mm hmm. It's interesting. John McWhorter talks about it as a religion. He, he, that's his, that's his, um, I know he's been writing articles about how anti-racism is a religion and it almost does. It does seem like that. Um, if you, if you go to church, if you go to church and you talk to, you know, a priest, you're not going to talk about whether or not God exists in, in that way. I mean, if, if you're already a part of the church, you're, you're going to want to know how is God going to save you. And it's like, I don't want to waste my time talking about, um, you know these nuances. I guess in certain situations, a priest might have to might have to convince the parishioners that God exists. But my, but I guess my point is, it seems like with anti racism, it's not about whether or not the, the the ideas are true. It's just about spreading the message. It's just about trying to forward the ideology. That's that seems to be what I get from it. And I think it's a shame because it doesn't it, it doesn't it doesn't develop it and it doesn't open it up for debate and it, it's it's not bringing helping people communicate, you know,
2: in chapter eight, eight of my book. I make reference to uh, a brief interview that she had with a writer for the Australian Financial Review. I think you know he asked her about, uh, you know, people who disagree with her. And she basically just said um, that I'm just not interested. She makes reference to Mac- Malcolm Black- Gladwell saying that you only need 30 percent converts to change the culture. And that's mm-hmm. basically what she's interested in. So, and then I think she says something along the lines of, it's very deliberating, try it out, you know, and so I kind of ended the tra- chapter by saying, uh, there you go, don't ask questions, liberate yourself, and that's what she's trying, you know, that's what she's after. Um, Love it. And I mean, she, I mean, she can't be any more explicit about it. I mean, I'm, mm. I'm basically quoting her, and if you ask her, she'll probably say, that's exactly what I'm doing.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, it's interesting because she she definitely says that if you're white, you are illiterate. You're racially illiterate. That that's one thing that always stuck with me. One of the reasons why I, I wrote my book is because I wondered why is she why is she the spokesperson for whiteness? I never thought that that was something that squared with me it was like she seemed to be she's become and evolved into the spokesperson for whiteness before white fragility came out when I started writing my book I was basing a lot of it on her book that was called what does it mean to be white uh, white racial literacy where she gets into what it means to be white and and all of these theories and all these ideas and it's like okay these are theories these are ideas but I don't agree that you would be that she's the spokesperson for whiteness especially especially when it gets into school when it gets into America's classrooms especially urban classrooms if you look at her background and you look at backgrounds of other people it's like I don't think she is the expert I don't think she should be the authority on telling teachers what is whiteness and and all these ideas about race and racism in urban settings where people are on the ground and they have a lot more experience than she does they don't have the degrees but they have a lot of experience
1: well, that, that brings up a good question. If we accept the framework that whiteness is something that somebody could represent, what would be the qualifications for being able to speak about this in a useful and genuine manner?
0: That's an interesting question, because I, I, I like what Jonathan talks about. You said the fallacy of reification, where they, where they treat whiteness as if it had its own existence where whiteness is this nebulous thing. So to go back to your question, what, what, what is whiteness and who's qualified to speak about it? I guess first you'd have to define what it is. Um, I read an article in The Federalist. I forget who, who wrote it, but the article was titled, When Progressives Say Whiteness, They Mean White People. Okay, And, and, that's, and, and when you talk about it like that, if, if when, when people like D'Angelo say whiteness, are they referring to white people? Are they referring to white culture? Are they referring to this nebulous thing that is just like a ghost in the machine? It's whiteness, but it's just in the system, but you can never pin it down. And I've even heard people say certain definitions of whiteness that people of color can can, um, have this kind of whiteness because it's about the dominance of society and dominant culture. So what is it? What is whiteness? What is your definition of it? And then once you figure that out, I guess – you, then, then you could figure out who who would be a spokesperson for it. I don't, I don't buy into the whole idea of this whiteness um, concept. I don't, I don't, I don't buy into it um, because it's, there's a double standard. Because you you have things like blackness. You talk about anti-blackness, and then that's a whole other thing in itself. It's like when, when when D'Angelo speaks of anti-blackness, it's like, well, well, what is blackness? And then what is whiteness? Are they held to the same standards in terms of the definitions? What are they? It, and you know what? I forget who you had on a couple of days ago. It was a professor from the University of Vermont or, or um,
1: Aaron. He made
0: a, yes, he made a good point. He said the definitions are so nebulous when you start talking about this stuff. It's almost left. So it's it's so nebulous that you can never get a hold of the rules so that they can always manipulate the rules and massage it into anything they want at the time. So it's really difficult because you can so- never pin it down.
1: Another question, yeah, and Jonathan, you can pick this up. Is, is it intentionally left vague? You guys have done some deep reading. You've written books on uh, anti-racism, uh, broadly speaking. Is are these terms intentionally left vague in order to advance the ideology?
2: I don't know that you can answer that question
1: definitively. Um, so, so, we- so it is. So it is vague.
2: Yeah, I mean, right. Okay, so there you go. Um, But the reason I say that is there's a lot of people who have written about this. And I think maybe it's helpful to think about what critical race theory is about. Um, And I remember listening to an interview by Neil Shenvey, if you guys are familiar with him. And he kind of nicely summarized it into four tenets. One is that racism is uh, pervasive and it's permanent. We're never going to get beyond it it's everywhere. Two, racism is hidden uh, via ideology and discourses, uh, things like, you know, ideology like universalism, uh, individualism, colorblindness, and whatever. So it's permanent, pervasive, and it's hidden. The way that we, and this is tenet number three, is that the way we learn about this is by listening to people talk about their lived experience, quote-unquote. And then four, that it's tied up with, the fourth thing is that, you know, this race is tied up with everything else, sexism and racism and so on. In other words, it's intersectionality. So it's permanent, it's hidden, we learn about it through lived experience, and it's intersectional. Now, uh, I think it's a very nice summary. I credit Neil Shenvey for, for that summary. Now, how does that relate to the question? Well, I relate it in terms of whiteness. That all of these things are operating through this nebulous term called whiteness. Um, Now, why do I say that? Because racism is essentially, I mean, it's defined in a number of ways. One of my main criticisms of critical race theory, um, and by the way, I don't advocate for banning it. I I advocate for critiquing it rigorously. And one of my main critiques is that it's based on uh, this nebulous concept of whiteness. so you could say, who is qualified, who is a spokesman, who should be talking about racism? Well, I mean, I suppose one of the ideas in critical race theory is that we should be talking about it in terms of lived experience. So white people are supposed to be talking about, you know, part of the idea of critical race theory is put the burden of racism on white people. And so you're supposed to be examining your own whiteness. And so you you talk about your lived experience as a white person and how you are complicit in racism now already you can see how this is becoming a dogmatic conversation because you're only allowed to talk about whiteness in terms of how it reinforces so-called systemic racism and then of course you're going to have people like d'angelo standing in there you know, monitoring how you talk about it. And if you don't talk about it in the right way, they're going to say, well, that's not quite right. And then if you, you know, object to that, it's going to be white fragility and so on. But anyway, with respect to these four tenets of critical race theory, we can talk about them in terms of whiteness in the sense that there are all of these ideologies and discourses that are hidden um, that reinforce white supremacy, and white supremacy is whiteness. But what you are led to is the so-called fallacy of ambiguity, which is that we start drawing inferences about racism, uh, racial inequality, uh, about the status of race relations from a premise, namely whiteness, that everything is embedded in whiteness. That is itself a very vague concept. I posit that we really don't have a good conception of what whiteness is and that it's kind of this, um, uh,
1: I'm, I'm stretching from metaphor like it, it's here. It's posited there uh, from which we
0: build everything else. To take it out of the theoretical lens and bring it into the classroom it's interesting because you can have lots of theories with it but then when it starts to trickle down into the american classrooms like the k-12 classrooms and it's getting into the classrooms earlier and earlier um little kids like literally kindergarten first grade they're starting to get these little picture books with anti-racism and whiteness there was that one um school in Cupertino, California, that was having third graders deconstruct their racial identity. Um, And then the the, uh, the idea of whiteness comes up. And from this theoretical place, even the way D'Angelo may look at it, it's like, okay, whiteness is this kind of innocent thing. It's about power. We're going to try and use it to level the playing field and bring about diversity. But then In order for everyday people and teachers and parents and students to understand this and then when it translates in, even if even if it's coming in the way it's supposed to, what happens is then you start to have things like you're targeting whiteness, you're disrupting whiteness. Um, And then students are, are heard, you know, they're starting to hear about white privilege and how whiteness needs to be disrupted, just like with disrupt texts. Um, Disrupt text is all about disrupting whiteness, getting the white authors, you know, um, out of the curriculum because we need more diverse voices. I have no problem with that. I've always uh, talked about using diverse authors and I and I and I do. I try to. But the thing is, to me, it's like you don't need to target one group to um, help another. That's been my philosophy. We can put all of our energy into helping, you know, if you want to say people of color or students of color, that's great. You wanna bring about diversity, that, that's awesome. And that's what I spend my life doing. But then when you take it to a next another step and it's like we need to target now and disrupt whiteness and then it becomes, well, what are you really doing now? What is whiteness? And that's where it gets fuzzy and that's where you could have other issues. There's been lawsuits, um, you know, when you're talking about targeting and disrupting whiteness and then what is it? It's, it's, it's really confusing. It's really, in, at times it's nebulous. So my issue with it is I think we need to continue to to strive for a level playing field and diversity. But I don't think we need to target and call out Things in terms of the whole, the whole whiteness. The, 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 that's again. This is why I wrote wrote the book, exploring white fragility, debating the effects of whiteness studies on American schools. It's all about whiteness studies.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I think whiteness studies is is counterproductive.
2: I would say that there's a there's a distinction to be drawn between theory and practice. Um, mm-hmm. As I said, I, I don't necessarily, you know, I try to be fair minded, and I've read a lot of this. You know, I haven't read everything because you know there's only so much you can do it in the day, but. Uh, I'm striving to get to there, but I've read a lot. One philosopher who I do think is a a, a sophisticated thinker on this is Charles Mills, a thinker that underlies a lot of this type of thinking in terms of white ignorance, uh, social epistemology, um, the racial contract, and so on. And if you read his work, I think you can at least say, this is a very thoughtful person who's well-schooled in Western philosophy, uh, he's not anti-liberalism, um, but he does have a lot of strong arguments to make about the nature of whiteness, and I don't necessarily buy into all of them. But I do think they're well articulated. Um, but one of the things that I don't, I, I just can't get on board with, is this notion of social epistemology. And I, I'm oversimplifying it here, but there's a certain kind of groupthink to white people, you know, that there's a kind of collective consciousness or whatever. In other words, a white racial frame that we're acculturated and civil, we think in civil ways, and that reinforces, you know, the racial contract and white supremacy and that sort of thing. And I'm probably oversimplifying to a certain extent. But the issue is that the theory can be very sophisticated. If you read Mills, I, I have to give him credit. But then you make the transition to practice. And one big criticism I have is that a lot of the people who teach critical race theory in trainings and schools, they themselves, I don't think they understand it that well. They just take the, you know, the talking points, the trainings that they've gone on through. And they're, you know, they're, they're amped up with this great spirit of anti-racism, which is, you know, noble in itself, because we all want to advance the cause of racial equality and so on. But, you know, One of the things is that this whole, you know, critical race theory or whatever, it's kind of social justice commandeered the terms justice and anti-racism. But when you're new to this, whether you're a teacher, you know, who's suddenly responsible for teaching us, new students who are very naive and immature because, you know, that's what it is to be an an elementary school kid or a teacher. You're introduced to this, and you're told of these terms, justice and answer. How could you be against that? And then you're indoctrinated with a lot of tenets that have somewhat of a sophisticated underlying theory to it, somewhat, but then it ends up being taught in a way that filters everything through a narrow dogmatic framework, and hence we're left with disrupt texts, everything's power and privilege, Mm -hmm. all white people think the same way, so on and so forth.
1: Eventually, being against and dismantling whiteness will be implemented as be against and dismantle white people, white individuals. Eventually, uh, it trickles down to the lowest common denominator and people will target whites like they will in our video when they come and say, what are these white men doing talking about this? Okay, if
2: that's what you mean, yes. I don't have partisan affiliations and I think that there is extremism on the left and on the right and i think that uh there is a tendency sometimes on the right to see this as a kind of um strictly anti-white like i don't like white people because they're white now i, I do think it manifests that in some of the red yeah areas that's what see. i'm saying
1: it manifests
0: yeah. that way
2: yeah but here's, but, here's
0: something interesting that you're talking about in terms of it coming into the classroom um it seems like I, I really I like to listen to, what, to the way Jonathan speaks because it's really interesting. The theories are really interesting. And if it was a college or a university, it would be great because you could get into the theories. I can see that. But even at the university level, it doesn't seem like they debate the theories, though. It seems no, like the, the theories are just like you said, it's dogma, it's indoctrination. But then when you're a at K to 12, it's like they bring this stuff in and it's like the students they're not getting the skills that they need. It's not only, it's not only white, you know, the whiteness studies and the anti-racism, but then it becomes an agenda comes in with it and it becomes the students are are no longer getting this rigorous academic instruction. And they're Mm. basically being molded into activists. Like that's right. That's that's, right. That's that's what's happening. So it's like, um, it it, it might be framed as we're going to bring this in so we can level the playing field. Great. But when you're in math class, you should have the rigorous math instruction. And when you're in school, um, and I'm sure parents, when when the parents send their children to school, they want, them, they want them to learn the academic skills. They don't want them indoctrinated with especially identity politics. And then you have the other agendas coming in because I've seen different textbooks, different things like Corwin Press. They have a whole lot of textbooks. I've been doing videos about them. And some of these textbooks, it's like they do math and then they use these um, – they use these agenda items like immigration and border security and, and global warming and um, defunding the police. But it's, it's, it's all being brought in to teach math, but it's all from one side of the equation. So it's like, we're going to teach about social injustice through math and they call it social injustice. And if you don't agree with their, with their positions on the agenda, on the topics, then you're not (laughs) for ending. injustice. And then you get nonsense
2: like, then you get nonsense like, you know, being told that there is a right white answer is itself some manifestation of whiteness. And that's the yeah. stuff where it just goes completely off base. It goes totally off the rails. London you know? yeah. and, uh, State
1: University has now made it uh, the, the basis and the focus of everything to be about equity. So every single thing, which means every discipline will have to be founded in this ideology, which is very related to what we're talking about here. Or this mm-hmm. is a variant of this critical ideology.
2: Yeah, and I think it was in Oregon, that, an uh, Oregon de- Department of Education, where I saw that notion of, you know, saying there is a right answer is itself a manifestation of whiteness or something like that. So a lot of this, a lot of Oregon, man, I don't know. Mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> so, Christopher, yeah. your book, could you describe your book, like the frame and the positionality that you're writing from?
0: sure you might to throw it up here on the screen a yeah. little yeah exploring whiteness <laughs> it's it's uh it's called exploring white fragility debating the effects of whiteness studies on america's schools and um basically the premise is that whiteness studies which is in a way kind of like anti-racism and critical race theory it's all very similar it's basically the same thing how although it means well and in certain cases it, it does a decent job it's doing some positive things in certain cases but as a whole there are parts of it where i have three points um the whiteness studies slash anti-racism, critical race theory, it's starting to, um, promote some resentment in, in teachers and parents and students. I'm a part of a group called no left turn in education. I just joined this and we have a teacher's committee and I've heard from teachers all over the country. And, um, there's, there's a, there's a silent majority. There's some resentment. There's some real resentment over this. And when you go to a training and you feel resentful and then you go back into your classroom, it's not a good, um, It's not a good way to go back in. So that's one of the issues that I have that I talk about in the book. Second thing is when you bring in this in terms of discipline, race-based discipline, the Obama presidency, what they were doing with race-based discipline, instead of looking at specifically behavior – um, you just look at behavior. Now, I understand that there's different so-called unconscious biases and things. But when you strictly focus on behavior and you look at discipline through behavior, that's one thing. But when you look at race and you have racial quotas, because I know what Obama was doing is Justice Department was saying, if, if, these, if, if race, uh, if the discipline is not proportionate, you, you may have issues with your funding. So it became a race based discipline. And then the Hoover Institute did a really interesting study and they surveyed teachers of color. And, and um, they were in urban schools and they were finding that this race-based discipline was actually hurting the learning environment and the learning environment was not as good as it could have been if they would have focused on just looking at behavior rather than race or having a, a quota system. Because I know some people will say African-American males are three times as likely to be suspended or expelled than their uh, white counterparts. And it's like, okay, we need to take a look at that. And we need to take a look at the whole equation and figure it out. But just looking at race that has, that's having a negative impact. That's what my book talks about. And finally, mm-hmm. when you look at the resentment, you look at the discipline, it, it, it trickles down into the instruction. And if you're looking at the instruction in the classrooms, um, especially when you're looking at everything through the lens of race and you're racializing everything, um, the Pygmalion effect and expectations, teacher expectations for students. When, when you're, when you're, going through a pre-service program if you're a teacher in a teacher college and you're learning whites are privileged you know whites have advantages whites are privileged they got to check their privilege you know students of color they, they, you know they're disadvantaged they're victims and you hear it over and over and over and it's like you go into the classroom it's a self-fulfilling prophecy you see the white students as as privileged you might see the students of color as as possibly you know disadvantaged or or as victims in certain situations and it's like I, I say, look, you look at the kid, you connect with the student, you try and have a good sense of humor, you try and connect with the student, and you teach the student, you learn the student's learning styles, because it's not about race, it's about learning style. And and this stuff is not is it's not doing that. And so between resentment, the discipline, the instruction, it's not it's counterproductive. And then there's there's other things in the book as well. I talk about how culture matters. Um, I talk about school uh, violence and being honest about school violence, because in order to solve the school violence, you have to be honest about it. You have to look at it, figure out ways to solve it. D'Angelo talks about the white racial frame, and she says she she has an example in her white fragility book. Or, or it's either her white fragility book or what does it mean to be white where her, she overhears student teachers talking about they're going to this urban district and it's unsafe and, you know, they're worried. And D'Angelo was was like, you're just stereotyping urban districts. You know, it's not true. You're seeing you're seeing the world through this white racial frame. This stuff isn't true. And it's like, look at the statistics. There are certain schools that have issues and challenges and some places are violent. You can't pretend that it's through a white racial frame we need to help we need to help the students and we need to be honest and we need to look at it in a way that we help and and i write about it i'm like don't don't pretend that it's that it's this white racial frame and white supremacy culture it tries to take an honest look at things and it also tries to have a have a conversation because it's really it's a monologue instead of a dialogue so this book tries to say let's actually have a dialogue instead of a monologue that's what it's all about <laughs> No, chris's
2: book is very good in terms of the practical stuff um like for me uh just i mean you can go back to whiteness real quickly like um and i'm going to get to chris's book in a second but like so much of this comes down to this genetic fallacy like whiteness can meet anything and everything but in practice what it means is you're saying that because you're white and not because your ideas are valid or not valid and that's probably my biggest frustration and so Chris comes along with a book which is a very good book probably better than mine in terms of how he talks about school discipline about the importance of fathers about culture and, and other things that are very should very very much be a part of the, the conversation and it's very database it's referencing a lot of studies it's not just claims that are drawn out of thin air but It's like you can't even get to the ballpark with it because your ticket is stamped in white. And so it's dismissed out of hand simply on the basis of so-called whiteness. That if you're not reinforcing the social justice narrative, you're reinforcing the whiteness narrative. And that kind of either-or Kendi-esque binary framework is in some sense very much a part of what stokes the divides about this, this type of stuff.
1: And Jonathan, you want to give a sketch about your book? And then Christopher, you can critique or praise it, uh, as is your want.
2: Yeah. Um, So uh, I guess I I would just describe it in contrast to Chris's because I think uh, the books are very complementary as opposed to being very much substitutes because I wish I had probably spent more time getting into some of the stuff that he does, which is, you know, the the school discipline, the culture, the family, and all that, but um, I kind of focused very, very narrowly on the rigor or that lack thereof um, in D'Angelo's work, Um, and if I were to sum it up in four, let me see if it's four four words, her work is not, uh, five words, her work is not robust in a robustness sense you know it's uh, methodologically flaw- flawed it's uh, it you know there's all these fallacies like genetic fallacy the reification fallacy the fallacy of ambiguity my book is saying that her work is analytically extremely weak it just okay. doesn't hold up to critical analysis and then i i give up my give a, a little bit of my own sort of alternative view of whiteness and so on but
1: if if it's Filled with so many fallacies, what makes D'Angelo's ideology stick together? What do you think is the constant or the gravitational force that gets all these things to stick together if it doesn't shape up analytically?
2: Is it why it's so re- people are so receptive to it, or is it what is it that makes it coherent, supposedly?
1: Well, I guess, yeah, I guess that's a twofold question then. What makes it coherent, and then what makes it. Uh, the thing
0: implicit Implicit bias what do you think jonathan implicit bias is that the glue right there is that part of it (laughs) so so
1: there's a question like something that makes you question so you have to believe trust and believe trust and obey kind of thing
2: it's white fragility and the idea is this it really ties into everything we've been talking about that you can't question the, the dogmatic narrative um chris cannot talk about culture he can't talk about family Uh, You can't talk about school discipline. I can't talk about the genetic fallacy, the reification fallacy, the fallacy. I can't do any of that because of whiteness. And if we raise any of these objections, we're exhibiting that defenselessness that she calls white fragility. And that arises from her years as a diversity trainer and then a PhD student um, and so on. Mm -hmm. And she has, throughout her career, Uh, as she says, encountered a lot of resistance from white people. How dare you call me racist and, you know, yada, yada, yada. And in her um, dissertation and then famously in her 2011 uh, paper in the International Journal of Critical Pedagogy, I think, you know, labeled this white fragility. Uh, And then in the aftermath of, say, everything that happened post-Ferguson or so, 2014-15, I think it was in 14 or 15 where there was an article that mentioned it, and it just blew up. And it seemed to offer a very simple and powerful and resonant explanation of, quote-unquote, as she says, why it's so hard to talk to white people about racism, which I translate as why it's so hard to convince white people that our dogmatic anti-racist framework is the correct way to talk about the world. Um, So, that's really what it is, I think, is that she offers a, a simplistic way to understand people raising objections. And again, I'm going to reiterate this because I think it's important when you look at the real literature, you know, even Crenshaw and her inter- intersectionality, it has merit. There is, there are certain common sense insights there. Um, and Charles Mills, he's a very, he's a sophisticated thinker. I don't agree with everything. So, I mean, I'm saying that there's thinking here, but um, the way that it, manifests in my experience and i'm sure in many others is um you raise an objection it's whiteness it's white fragility there's no objection to this the only way to advance anti-racism is to imbibe this polity of work as dogma
0: yeah christopher yeah, I just think the first time that I saw Jonathan's articles, that's how I actually we met because I read his articles and then I emailed and reached out to him. And then we ended up uh, collaborating on an article that ended up in the Federalist. And then we worked together and peer reviewed each other's books. And I learned a lot. Um, but his book, it's just really refreshing for me because you 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 have D'Angelo's white fragility and all of her ideas and theories in Jonathan's book. It just it just shreds. It shreds them It, it, it like they just come apart it just he he just it's great because it's very scholarly it's academic but it's like you can you can use logic and follow it through and it just totally Mm -hmm. goes one by one by one and it just takes them apart it exposes them it's just it feels good to read that because when you read d'angelo you get frustrated you get frustrated because of all the things that are going on in the smoke and mirrors and all these things Mm -hmm. but then when you read jonathan's book it's like Ah, oh, yeah, there we go. He, you know, it's this fallacy, it's that fallacy. He he breaks it down. He corrects the errors, the the, the mistakes. Like with Jackie Robinson and other things, um, she gets things wrong, and it just feels good. It's refreshing. It's something that that's now documented that you can put alongside hers, and you can you could use it as a way to see see through it. You know.
2: Peter Bogosian says, with a sledgehammer and a scalpel, he pulls pulverizes the rubble. <laughs> right, <laughs> in good Peter Bogosian style. Yeah, um, style, But yeah, actually, I, I was going to say uh, yes. Uh, implicit bias is actually when I first got into this, that seemed to be the uh, the core idea.
1: Mm-hmm. So, if it is a bunch of Kafka traps and a bunch of rhetorical maneuvers, and there's something left over on the other side of uh, what D'Angelo and Kendi have made of this. But even if there is something back there, D'Angelo and Kendi are the ones who are reshaping our institutions or organizations. And it looks like our justice department and then eventually our law. How does this stuff play out in graphic explicit terms? How does this stuff play out when it rules over law uh, and then business And then education. I mean, it's already in education, but.
0: Yeah, go ahead. I I think there's going to be some serious litigation coming soon. That's just my feeling. Um, Again, the professor you had on a couple days ago, I apologize. I can't remember his name.
2: Aaron. Yeah, I I know Aaron. He's I've interacted with. Nice
0: guy. He was talking about. Some trauma. I, I I can't remember exactly what he's saying, but when you get down into this stuff, because it is violating in certain situations, it's it's violating federal uh, civil rights anti discrimination laws. It's like when you're talking about someone's culture, you're talking about deconstructing whiteness, and you're putting people in these situations. I really believe that there. Are, I honestly believe that there's going to be. They're going to find ways to look at. This is provoking trauma with kids. Um, I really think that there's going to be class action lawsuits um, in terms of. Even indoctrination, there's got to be laws. There's got to be policy that says you just cannot indoctrinate students and indoctrinate people in trainings. So I think even though it's 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 getting more and more and it's putting race on the table and it's racializing everything, I think the pushback is coming. And I think it's also getting exposed. And I, I think that um, I, I don't know. I don't know if it's going to end up with what you had said before. You know, the uh, targeting whiteness may end up be targeting white culture or white people in that case. I I don't know how far it's going to go, but I definitely think that um, that that we need to have the conversation about it because I think it's it's overstepping its bounds. And I think that there is I think there is going to be litigation coming. I think there's already Christopher Rufo is getting together the team of lawyers and um, Mm -hmm. there's there's other activist groups who are talking to parents talking to students there's lawsuits out there and i think you, you just can't you can't do it that's just that's just what i think you know
2: yeah i uh, hesitate to
1: make predictions about anything i'm not a forecaster um, no you're an economist which isn't
2: a yeah.
0: forecaster
1: at all
2: well there there's a f- subfield but they're not very good well <laughs> yeah i mean they're not very they're not known for their their, the Accurate. accuracy of their predictions uh, a lot of the times. So, um, but yeah, I, I mean... I'm but without
1: a, forecasting, what do you so, see the inevitability? Yeah, so,
2: you know, one of the critiques I make of D'Angelo is her misreading of Foucault and the idea of knowledge classifications being power classifications. And the ironic part being that knowledge classifications like whiteness and white privilege and whatever having themselves become power classifications. That's the idea. Like, this is all dogma, we have to imbibe it, and the people who are doing it are people in power, the administrators of the university, whatever. So that's one of the biggest um, ironies in all of this, is that Mm -hmm. in some sense they are the, and and in fact that's part of the point of cynical theories. Um, You know, there are people who vehemently criticize, but but that's what I see a very central insight there. and. So in some sense, they are uh, sort of carrying out that Gramsci- Gramscian project, re uh, war of hegemony, taking over um, institutions, and they've done it, and now you're seeing resistance. I mean, there is a sort of McCarthyite feel to out there. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, like, I think that there's, there's merit to criticize, I mean, I was not a Trump fan, I do think that he's. I think that he made things worse. I don't think he uh, really understood critical race theory, um, and I think that his talent was always seeing that there was an enemy, an energy, and he knew how to cultivate it. He's a promoter. He's not somebody who understands this stuff. And I thought he made things worse. Um, but uh, the, um, but, uh, and so in that sense, like, like, I can sort of understand when uh, people on the left get you know are jumping off their seats uh it's some of the more extreme manifestations of the resistance um but at the same time they won't admit and subject themselves to criticism at all so i'm at this point where i my my mind is going in a hundred different directions and the result is but but basically the point i want to get through quote across is that there is a mccarthyite feel to you know the cancel culture stuff that is real and people who are denying that you know, under the pretext that, oh, you know, it's just about trying to get people to do better, it's nonsense. They're just, they're just not getting it. Um, and if, if that continues, you're gonna get this backlash, you're gonna get this resistance, you're gonna get the Chris Rufos who are organizing litigation, it's just gonna happen. And how that mm-hmm. plays out, it's just, it's not, I don't think it's gonna be good. So to me, like, I, I kind of feel myself like unaffiliated with it, with anybody. Like, I'm just trying to think about the ideas. Like, Mm -hmm. I'm trying to get it right. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm just trying to read through this thing, this stuff. It's all I really can. People, you know, one of the things that really frustrates me is the idea that everything is political. Um, I mean, look, Aristotle says, yeah, okay, we're all political animals. We're all social animals. I get that. There's a political dimension. But really, I mean, at some level, there is a genuine, honest, good faith effort to get it right. And that's Mm -hmm. what I'm focused on.
0: You know, what's interesting, I've always noticed you've been very, you're very objective, but it seems like in today's society, um, especially with the media, it's like all about narrative and, and there's legitimately, yeah. uh, there's, it's like legitimately people put out the misinformation. It's like, That's it's all. That's where I
2: about was that. trying to go with it. That's where I was trying to go it's with like, it. You said it. I mean,
0: you, you don't I don't know where, where I, I. try to get it right. It doesn't I, matter. I don't Truth. know
2: where I fit into all of this because you're right. It's all about narrative, rather from the left or the right.
0: Yeah. But it's good that you're still solid like that. That you that you still are, are are objective. And it seems like a lot of the publications that you write for, they're very they're very scholarly. They're objective. That's the that's the good part about them. They they care whether you're the left or the right. It's it's objectivity. It's trying to get it right. Trying to make it true. That's what we need. But we don't have a lot of that. You know.
1: Well, speaking yeah. of narrative, and Othello, hmm. um, do, you, do you guys think that we're we're headed towards a Tragedy, or you think that somebody is going to stop Iago uh, before uh, too much damage is gone.
0: In terms of the immediacy of of your question, not even a year or ten years or five years, just today, because mm-hmm. of what's going on the the trial, um, the, the trial that's happening. It's day two of the trial, I guess. Um, mm-hmm. the Chau- the Chauvin trial, however, you say his last name. Um, yeah. That's that's going to be interesting how that how that evolves because. Um, is it going to, is it going to evolve in a way that's honest? And are we going to have more, um, honesty in terms of looking at what happened and having people try and communicate and, and come to a place where we say, you know, this is what happened. We need to have correct consequences. We we need to try and work together to understand this. It shouldn't be, we shouldn't be putting out narratives that are distorting anything for politics. It should Mm be, let's work with each other. Let's figure out what really happened and let's try and communicate so we can get past it? Or is it going to be round two of we're going to use this to put out misinformation or distort on both sides to gin yeah. up all the stuff and then have all kinds of stuff going on? I'm hoping that it's going to be a little more civil and we're going mm-hmm. to be able to look at it together. But I don't know. It seems like after two days, I was expecting it to be a little more crazy than it is. But who knows? It's only, it's only I the think beginning.
1: There's going to be people who are – going to make very polarizing narratives and, you know, uh, denigrate just the concept of actual justice for the sake of social justice, which is what I'm seeing on Twitter. And then there'll there'll be a backlash of that. The big question is, to what extent will the American public buy into that? And to what extent is the American uh, public after a year, almost a year, of suffering and all the damage and all the reparations morally and through training, to what extent are they going to be done and say, okay, the facts are the facts and we are not going to be in this frenzied state anymore. And then to what extent will they stand up and put down the dissenters who think that they can get away with burning buildings or just burning discourse by, by inflaming everything with great narratives. So it has to be a public temperature thing.
2: One of the more encouraging things that I see uh, I, you know is that I see a lot of young uh, people who um, for whatever reason too in the UK basically you can see that this is not something that is universally imbibed by the by generation Z or whatever. That said um, you know you migrate fear is things like disrupt texts and removing Lincoln statues and and things like that um, in the Destroying name our of culture
1: j- yeah. Yeah, this
2: yeah. I mean, yes, but for me, uh, I mean, it is about culture, but it's also about <laughs> just getting it right. Like, disrupt Dex is just getting it literature wrong. It's uh, Arthur Schlesinger Jr. in uh, wrote a book, The Disuniting of America, in the early '90s. He talked about using history of therapy, and he said something like the the. Use of history as therapy is the end of you the use of history as, as scholarship or something. I'm, I'm, I'm butchering it, but similar idea with literature. Use of literature as therapy is the butchering of literature. Uh, I mean, Toni Morrison comes up because she talked about how all of America, American literature reads as, uh, from a white, you know, that positions people as white, and I'm just thinking like, like Toni Morrison is a fabulous writer. Uh, there's a book, Song of Solomon, which I, I read not too long ago, uh, maybe a couple of years ago, actually. But I mean, this is a profound story, inter- intergenerational drama. It's really a moving story, and it's written within the context of Jim Crow America. But I don't see it as a story that is simply meant as an instrument for teaching us about Jim Crow America. That would be a very superficial reading of the play, Kendi Uh, in his book, brings up Gone with the Wind as some kind of birth of the nation propaganda film from 1930s. One of the interesting things about Gone Gone with the Wind, first, it's a fascinating story, very, very well well done story. But one of the interesting things is that I'm reading this, and I I come to realize how much I loathe just about every aspect of Confederate society. And I mean, if there is a book that can make you see just how bad Confederate society was in terms of the, not I mean not even just the treatment of black Americans as slaves but the way women are positioned I mean everything that you talk about to patriarchy and racism so I mean it's like right there on display everyday life and it's like mm. holy mackerel this is life And so I mm. mean if you really want literature to serve your social justice purpose, read Gone with the Wind but still it's actually ultimately a, a love story. To get back to what I'm saying, disrupt texts is a very, very unfortunate development because of the way it dogmatically reads literature, and mm-hmm. as young people are reading that, I think they're being shortchanged. Removing statues of Lincoln is very unfortunate because they're getting a shortchanged, immature, naive view of history and Lincoln's place in it, and so on and so forth. And those are the types of delayed
1: developments that worry me. Christopher, do you... Uh As a teacher, Mm -hmm. interacting with uh, disembodied, sometimes not even visual students, uh, can you even give us an accurate temperature um, on the uh, ability for kids to see through this, the young people seeing through uh, the shallowness of,
0: of this reading? The shallowness of, you're talking about like critical race theory?
2: Yeah, and all the all the dogma that we're 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 reading Othello as a racist
0: story and all that. Um, I I did this interesting uh, exercise activity with my students before we began reading Othello. Um, I I, there were these two letters written in the Washington Post. One was from a teacher um, that. Loved Shakespeare and said, we have to continue to teach Shakespeare because Shakespeare has these universal values that transcend race. And we have to continue to teach Shakespeare because he's not just a white author, but he transcends race. And then there was this other teacher who wrote this letter that said, you know, Shakespeare was the disrupt text model. We have to get rid of Shakespeare because he's this white guy. And it's, it's, you know, just white supremacy culture. So I gave the students the two different letters. They were basically articles in the Washington Post and the students read them and then they had to identify the thesis and they had to pick out the arguments and then they had to decide which one they agreed with more. And the interesting thing was the overwhelming majority of my students, this is before we started, uh, Othello, like 80%, 85% said we should continue to do Shakespeare. Um, They got the points and they agreed. So to answer your question in that way, I think that the students are open-minded, I think At least my students, they still believe in like the Martin Luther King dream kind of uh, approach where we want to judge the person by the content of the character. When you get in, if you get into all these specifics and and you really lay it out for the students, they'll say that it's wrong. Like the kids will say, you know, you shouldn't judge a person. You shouldn't generalize all white people as privileged. If you said to them, do you think all whites are privileged? Is it good to, you know, associate all whites with a privilege? The kids will say no. You know, do you think that it's good to you know polarize people into different camps according to identity and and you know look at people just by stereotypes and generalizations i don't think the kids buy into it we don't get down into the, the, this kind of stuff enough because I try and stick to the skills. I try and stick to just the rigor of the instruction. I try and teach the universal themes. Whenever we do get into anything that has to do with race or this kind of stuff, I, I, always, I always try and teach the critical thinking where I say, here's one side of the issue. Here's the other side of the issue. Make sure that you understand both sides and you make your own decision. That, that's one thing. There's there's something called critical consciousness, and then there's something called critical thinking, right? Critical consciousness is this idea where. In a way, it's almost there's the oppressors and the oppressed. There's systemic oppression. We have to identify it, and we have to become activists to fight against it. That's critical uh, consciousness. I don't teach that. I teach critical thinking where I say you need to look at this issue. It doesn't matter what the issue is. I really want you to research both sides, understand the thesis and the arguments, and then you decide for yourself. And you can decide whatever you want for the most part as long as you understand how to think it through because when you go into the real world, then you can – you can analyze and understand things but because when you indoctrinate the kids they're not learning how to do that they're just learning this 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 dogma they're just learning this ideology and and literally it's sad because then they can't argue it they can't debate it they mm-hmm. don't understand and all they do is get mad because it doesn't agree with what they've been taught my yeah, students that's right we, we, we I don't I don't um, find it as much because we're just trying to teach them the basics, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. We're trying to get them up to speed, teach them the basics and this stuff doesn't come in as much so it's kind of a good thing.
1: So I witnessed if, that, that there's the, there's a certain you're speaking well, with an ideologue and you you uh, it, just in the wild now you, you can start seeing these these phrases pop up. you're like, okay, they're they're to hear it. But, but you, every time when they start up here, you push them down, you push them down, you, you get them to a place where they're losing, and they start panicking. And then they go after the racial attack, like then, then, the, then they just go on the attack, and then they, go, and then they blow up because they, they don't know how to reason to where they're reasoning from. They don't know how to reason back and forth from it. They just know how to, to mm-hmm. promulgate them, disseminate what has seeded them. And it's sad, but hopefully, you know, with enough conversation, with enough discussion, with enough debate, um, at least that will be shown to the third party that it's not really viable. Or there's something that that individual didn't really have that could back up what they're saying and stuff. Or you get D'Angelo, who just refuses to go anywhere and says, yeah. well, I, I don't have to because I'm going to get a million dollars next week from Jack Jack Dorsey um, to push this even further. Along the way, I think so. he gave Candy uh, ten million dollars. Yeah. <laughs> um,
2: eventually, life will catch up to him. Uh, I think one thing I think I'm confident in saying is that life will always be challenging for people, and people will mature. I think of Jonathan Haidt, Greg Lukianov and Coddling of the uh, American Mind to the extent that this is a dominant theme in um, campus culture or in uh, intellectual disciplines I'm not convinced that it's there everywhere things like microaggressions or whatever you're essentially teaching kids how to be weak how to be robots or oversensitive yeah. you're not you're not building resilience to the challenges that life will inevitably pose to them.
0: you, you know what's interesting about it a lot of times when you hear about talking about race, I hear the phrase, we have to have the tough conversation um, talking about race is uncomfortable. It's tough. But the interesting thing is when it actually gets tough and uncomfortable, when you bring in more than one perspective, it's too, too tough and too uncomfortable. He can't it's do violent. It. It's amazing it how violent.
2: fragile my critics are. <laughs>
0: it's yeah.
2: amazing. My critics are the most fragile people. <laughs> you know, I, and I, always,
1: I, it's, uh, I love pointing that out. Because- Christopher, state your book title one more time just to get it into people's heads.
0: Sure, I'm going to put it up here. It's called Exploring White Fragility, Debating the Effects of Whiteness Studies on America's Schools.
1: And are you doing any teaching uh, or uh, uh, live streams or like some sort of seminar on that with that um, in your groups? Or uh, do you have anything like that set up?
0: Well, for me, I mean, I have my YouTube channel. Um, oh, yeah. it's the name of the YouTube channel. My YouTube my YouTube channel is called Inside White Fragility, which I have to thank you because last summer you you got it off the ground for me. I had 30 I had 30 subscriptions and after your show, I, I, it got up to like a thousand in a couple weeks or a month or something. <laughs> so yeah, you, I, you, love, you, I
1: love checking in with your stuff.
0: I really appreciate that. But I mean, I do my videos. I, I, uh, I'm a member of this group. It's called No Left Turn in Education. Um, you could you could Google no left turn in education, or I think it's no left turn. Us, um, it's it's a group for parents, students, and also teachers. We have a teachers' committee that I'm a co-chair of that. Um, so I, I do things with them. It's kind of new, but I have my channel. I have a I also have a blog, and um, you know I, I try and I've been doing some podcasts and trying to get out the word. I I don't do seminars. I, I, you know, I'm not at the level where I can do seminars. It would be great. I I don't bring this into my classroom. I can't, you know what I mean? I I, kind of have two different, two different lifestyle, you know, two different worlds. I have my professional and yeah. And I keep it separate and I respect, you know, that we coexist. And and I think that it connects because I think I'm just really trying to help the kids anyway, you know? So, that's, that's, that's kind of what I do. So we'll see what happens with it.
2: I should say that the book on white fragility for me is called reinventing racism. And it's the whole idea that essentially this is what it's all about is you reinventing what racism is really about. And I, you know, unapologetically adhere to the old school definition of racism as prejudice, bigotry on the basis of race. Uh, and that, The power element is just something that you add on to that, and everything that's so-called systemic is a legacy of racism. What we are talking about in terms of systemic racism uh, is not something that I am denying, but I think of it as the legacy of racism that must be overcome, as opposed to something that is permanent and pervasive violence that is in every aspect, reified, if you will, in society. That I object to.
1: And any other resources, Jonathan, or, or Christopher, that you guys have found that, that you think that the average person counterweight. is counterweight? Ca-
2: yeah, I'm, a, I'm, I'm affiliated with Counterweight. I think they're doing great. I have a friend from, uh, you know, Counterweight, I believe. I, believe. Yeah, yeah. Um, I have a friend from high school who I connected with, Helen. Um, and he uh, had some back and forth with Helen. And he went into his school's, I guess, equity diversity uh, session for teachers and whatever. He had like four pages of notes, and he started talking about Kafka traps and whatever. And and the principal had to sh- close, shut him down. But it actually upset the crowd because everybody wanted to hear more. Um, and I think that's the sort of resistance that we're probably going to see more of. But counterweight is 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 doing good work.
1: Excellent.
0: I was going to bring up you know the the, the new discourses and all that, but everybody knows you know Lindsay and new discourses and all. So that's just a it's been product.
1: very useful for you it's it is a very phenomenal yeah. project
0: yeah. that's great with breaking down the social justice language and all that it's really helpful it's good and the cynical theories too was great
1: mm. yeah. yeah he's got a lot of material yeah well thanks so much guys um for right, thank, uh coming on the show thank you well really
2: no, thanks for it. having us friend
0: yeah, yeah thank you Excellent. it's great
1: congratulations for reaching the end of the discussion. If you enjoyed it, do be sure to leave a review or a comment or a thumbs up or whatever you need to do to show that glorious algorithm that this is some good stuff. And do be sure to go and check that back catalog as it is brimming full of fantastic conversations. Links to provide monetary support are down there in the description as well. Have a good night.